Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Support for this episode is brought to you by 20th Century Fox, presenting Ford vs. Ferrari, starring Matt Damon and Christian Bale. Critics say Ford vs. Ferrari represents big screen movie making at its best. On every level from its cast, script, and direction, this is a production that has its roots in what movies should be all about. Now winner of the National Board of Review's Top 10 Films, Ford vs. Ferrari, for your consideration. Now playing in theaters everywhere. You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal. Or measure them all by box office appeal But for once in your life Be real! Welcome one and all to a movie reviewing reappraising genre hopping podcast Be Real on the Playlist Podcast Network I am a gambler from the Cantobite region called Chance Solemn Pfeiffer, and on the other line, I have seen a security podcast of him killing younglings. <laughs> it's <laughs> Noah Ballard. How are you, buddy? I th- I'm good. I was hoping you would do, and on the other line, that's no moon. It's <laughs> Noah Ballard that's from good. Brooklyn. As always, we would love you to rate and subscribe the Playlist Podcast Network and check out shows like The Discourse, Fourth Wall, and Indie Beat. We are here today. We're hopping to the supersize, the Death Star size genre of what? All the all the canonical. It's not really canon. How to describe all the saga Star Wars movies? Yeah, I guess. None of the spin-offs. No, just the main three trilogies we're recording this on the sunday after thanksgiving and it is a tradition for us on be real to do an irresponsibly large kind of blowout show yeah Uh, enough to alienate our loved ones over this long weekend well with the rise of skywalker coming in on december 20th we have worked our way back through these eight and normally on the show we do more like 15 20 minute kind of fuller retrospectives For this particular project, because of the degree to which these movies have been discussed on something I'm told is called the internet, uh, we're going to try to hone our discussion a little bit. Noah and I each have one uh, hopefully refreshing, maybe interesting, kind of essayistic take about each movie. I basically was like, if you force me to try to write something about each of these movies, this is probably the thing I would try to write about, was how I picked. So, quickly... But I am interested. What is your relationship to Star Wars? I saw the original three episodes four through six when I was a kid on the VHS release of them, that quintessential box set that everybody had. Amazing. With the Leonard Maltin interviews. With the Leonard Maltin interviews. George? I love... Star Wars. People go zany for these things. <laughs> yeah, that's the best part about it. He doesn't really ask any questions of George Lucas. He just makes 
really like big pronouncements to him and then let George like do a victory lap for the fact that he's a god. Yeah. <laughs> for the fact, yeah, that he is more money than the old Republic. Absolutely. Um, and then it goes to these movies, which are more or less the cuts of the movies as they appeared in the 70s and early 80s when they originally came out. Right. And then there was a set of them re-released, I guess I, when I was in high school. The special editions you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I yeah. saw those. And that's like a whole different experience. And now there's like this third cut of them that we watched on Disney+. Plus. Right. So they're uh, 4K, they're new 4K transfers, but uh, the Disney Plus versions are mostly the special edition versions. For sure. That is like the available version of the uh, originals. So, um, But I saw the prequels when they came out in theaters, and I think I was the perfect demo for how ridiculous, like especially Phantom Menace is, and then like all right. the video games of pod racing and all that shit was like yep. that was the thing so i don't know i feel like i've engaged with star wars as an average american engages with american pop culture okay i might cut like a little deeper than that please do because i was into expanded universe shit as a kid like pretty hard um but in what medium are you talking about like those goofy books oh yeah i nice. i had 50 to 70 Star Wars Expanded Universe novels on my bookshelf. I had one called, I remember well, I only had a couple of them, but one that I really liked called The the Glove of Darth Vader. Did you have that one? I don't think so. His like glove had floated off into space after the second destruction of the Death Star and some person, some politician who shouldn't have had control of that sort of power, if his glove had any power, (laughs) uh suddenly had it and that i don't remember where the plot went i think in the intervening years though as my fandom has moved from star wars to movies i've become much more invested in like the production legacy of these which is like why my favorite annoying bit which i'm sure i've told you before Noah, is that a new hope is not a movie that movie is called star wars and it came out in 1977 like i really don't love the George Lucas revisionism. Should we go back and start with Star Wars? We're going to try to keep this to about 10 minutes of movie. Please do. Let's do it. I tried to also make these something that I had not thought about a lot before. Something that did dawn on me this time. because These are all questions did... that dawned on me on this watch. Very good. Very good. Um, my main take about this movie is how surprisingly, unassailably important Alec Guinness and Peter Cushing are to this two-hour slice of filmmaking. Um, we could talk about the performative qualities of Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher as like 19 and 20-year-olds, but I'll start with Alec Guinness. He is a steadying and enchanting presence in this movie who basically, at a time when people have no idea what Star Wars is, is responsible for convincing the audience that the Force exists, that it's important, and that it has rules. And he does such a beautiful job that 
like the force enters the lexicon and feels like an important thing. And other without him, if you watch the first 45 minutes of this movie, it's a lot of like wavering young actors trying to find their feet. And he really grounds it. I would absolutely agree. Yeah. I think that, yeah, you have, I wrote down here and this, I'll pick a different question from, for my return volley here, but I wrote, mm-hmm. is Mark Hamill, the Stanislavski of bad sci-fi acting. <laughs> and I think, I mean, what you're getting at is the bigger point that this movie just really runs the gamut with sort of ridiculous acting and ridiculous performances and then some of the best performances in this genre that like I've ever seen. So yeah. I think Alec Guinness as this aged failed Jedi guy who has the backstory that we don't even know yet because the prequels haven't come out uh, is really just sort of waiting to die. Like there are a lot of these characters in this move in these movies are just like sitting somewhere waiting to die and he really introduces that in a way that can ground, I think, yeah, like you said, sort of uneven performances, especially for Mark Hamill, and then to play the yin to sort of the yang of like a Han Solo, jokey, mm-hmm. like, what are we doing here, guys, kind of performance. Right. It's a very early example of like prestige casting, too. I mean, Alec Guinness coming out of Bridge on the River Kwai and Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy, super respected like older British actor. Um, and then you have Cushing, who I think has this, because he's made like 75 horror films by the time this comes out, right. all those Hammer films, has this preternatural sense of how to sell ridiculous material and doesn't blink at a second with what he's asked to do. I mean, he's the perfect example of how you take a lowbrow, small-budget, would-be B-movie and imprint it on the mind of a whole generation as something important and serious and his performance is so good that he like basically baits carrie fisher into doing an english accent in that one scene um there's a little more to it than that but i I have to think that that was part of it so cushing and guinness are newfound mvps in my most recent watch the more you tighten your grip tuck the more star systems will slip through your fingers not after we demonstrate the power of this station in a way you have determined the choice of the planet that will be destroyed first. Since you are reluctant to provide us with the location of the rebel base, I have chosen to test this station's destructive power on your home planet of Alderaan. No, Alderaan is peaceful. We have no weapons. You can't You will possibly... prefer another target, a military target? Then name the system. So my question starts here, and I think this will sort of spiral out, hopefully, as we talk about all these movies. But, like, how big is the rebellion? um so like that's i think the my big question after watching this movie is that like okay like luke skywalker is this famous guy after this thing happens or like we're seeing the story about this famous guy do this famous thing right blow up this like immensely large and immensely expensive weapon and that the whole galaxy is familiar with him but if you think about okay they're in this galaxy with a seemingly infinite amount of people living on an infinite amount of planets thousands they say at one point that the senate represents thousands of planets Mm -hmm. how many people are like in the quote-unquote empire how many people are in the quote-unquote rebellion like what are we talking about here like 
eventually too we'll get to cities and things that seem otherwise bustling and totally unaware that like oh they burned down the jedi temple well there's still traffic on like airstream number 72 and coruscant you know like how (laughs) big like how important is this what are the stakes what are the stakes of the Empire versus Rebellion conflict? Help in me, Star Obi-Wan Wars? Kenobi, you're my only hope for how many people? What would like, you like, know? Like a census to be taken? I would love to know numbers. I would love some hard data. This comes back to a point that a uh, former guest of ours, John DeLillo, who writes for Film School Rejects, made, which is one of the weird things about Solo, and I don't know if I agree on that point of Rogue One, is that for this boundless universe, why do most of the things that come out make it seem smaller and smaller? Why do they all have fidelity to like this one single storyline that we've already seen? Which I think is actually a really cool thing about The Mandalorian is it's very clearly pushing to the, uh, pun intended, outer rim of what is going on like in this world. It is actually making it seem bigger, which there is, there should be so much to explore, right? But I guess my question, and as these movies go along, is is that the Star Wars paradox that, like, because it's so big, you know, like, why is this young woman who's only been in Jakku her whole life, like, stripping parts from post-empirical weaponry that's crashed onto her planet, why does she know who Han Solo is? It does seem like the the movies Star Wars are the all, the, the defining mainstream roman narrative of this world yeah they do peter out to everywhere else but i think the idea that it's a paradox is smart it just made me wonder what the purpose of these movies and like what you're trying to say like this constant battle of like good versus evil like in i think four five and six of course that's like just a universal thing but i think when we get into the nitty-gritty of the prequels trying to explain the socio-political climate that led to such a like a a reaction of these two opposing polar opposite forces coming to be at odds like yeah. that. Maybe I don't quite follow. That's a problem I would ultimately put on the prequels. Um, let's rate star Wars. Cause we got to move on star Wars. What do you think? It's a good, good. Uh, I think there is a lot. The other thing I wanted to point out is that I think there's a lot of clever editing from Marsha Lucas, who won an Academy Award for this, um, that really compensates for the lack of tech. Uh, the I love the flash editing around the sand people attack and the ultimate sort of Death Star explosion where the last thing you see is the silhouette of Tarkin is just a gorgeous like filmic workaround for stuff that Lucas is later like, oh, why couldn't I show what I wanted to show? It's like, oh, sorry, you had to do beautiful editing to make up for it. Right. Um, I think the technical achievement, Sarah made a great point when we were watching this. She's like, how many sounds are indelible in your mind because of Star Wars? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, it's exactly like Jesus. 20? 20, this franchise that just put 20 sounds in the brains. Of, there you go. Um, yeah, I mean, Star, Star Wars is good. I think good, it's good, good, good too. I, I'm pretty annoyed by the addition of like the digital stuff that's like pretty clear. Terrible. But other than that, I think it's a pretty great movie that, as you said, is grounding some pretty great, grounded by some pretty great performances around maybe some shaky performances. Um, yep. And I think this one doesn't bite off too much. It's a very simple, very closed story that like, oh, if it's just a one-off movie, it makes sense and it's fine. And if it turns out to be a nine-movie 
series, it still also works as an opening chapter. True. That's a good point. So, Empire Strikes Back, 1980. My main takeaway from this movie, and I suppose this makes sense. I mean, I've seen this movie a hundred times. As I get older, I realize how little I listened to Yoda. Yoda is a phenomenal character and a phenomenal puppet. Um, I love a good puppet. It makes sense that as a 10-year-old, the thing you pay the least attention to is the conversations that this man in a swamp has with a puppet. <laughs> you're, like, you're just like, get me to Lando. Get me to Space Slugs. Um, oh, man. But it's a, it is a beautiful middle part of this very well-paced movie. And I think that Yoda is really interestingly drawn as a trickster archetype. He's constantly speaking in riddles, which is what makes his reappearance in Last Jedi such a beautiful corrective thing, I think. He's not some exhausted papal figure. <laughs> He's a trickster character. Um, and it, he works really well with Luke because for all the... I'm going to talk a lot about Anakin Skywalker in the prequels later, but... Luke may be a better drawn character than I think. Anakin is a character who fundamentally believes that he can do anything and, if not, should be able to. Luke fundamentally believes that he can't do stuff, that he won't get out of whatever situation he's in, that he proverbially will be a moisture farmer the rest of his life, which seems to be consistent with the idea of a child who has been abandoned into this kind of menial rural life. So every time he kind of whines like, we'll never get out of here. We can't do this. That negativity, um, I think actually makes sense for his character profile and sets up a lot of timeless inspirational Yoda lines like, oh, I don't believe it. Yeah, that is why you fail. So as you get older, I would say my take is pay more attention to Yoda. I don't, I don't believe it. That is why you fail. I love that. What was your take this watch on Lando Calrissian? Because I watched it this time and I was like, one... Lando has like three scenes for the most part. The first two, he just like drops everything he's doing to make Leia uncomfortable. Yeah. And then the third one, he betrays them. Uh-huh. <laughs> so you're wondering why he's such a beloved character? So I'm wondering why he's such a beloved character. Because he is sort of your prototypical like creep. And then he turns out to have totally betrayed them. And I also think, and I wonder if this, and they play with this in the in Solo in kind of a funny way, um, but it also comes down to the fact that, and I texted you about this, Chance, but he's the only character who doesn't call Han Solo Han. He yeah. calls him Han. There's still time to save Han. <laughs> but it, it just speaks to sort of a lack of respect or something about like what this person's actually... A lack of respect. Well, I mean, if you then see Solo, you understand that, like, Han has kind of fucked him over a couple times. That's true, yeah. The only thing I would push back on is, like, do I should should you or I or people we know behave toward 
women the way Lando behaves toward Princess Leia? No, of course not. But also, he's a, a suave, daring pirate character who's trying to romance everyone, and the charisma of Billy D. Williams is You're saying that his- Billy D. Williams just can't help it. You look absolutely beautiful. You truly belong here with us among the clouds. Mm, thank you. Would you join me for a little refreshment? Mm. Everyone's invited, of course. Well, I also think that that speaks to a very apparent sexism in the at least the first three of these, if not the first... The first six. Yeah, the first six for sure. Yeah. And I think, like, yes, I mean, people have made the point that, like, Leia pushes back pretty good against all the male characters in this, but I yeah. still think that the the eye of this movie is very much of the... Oh, Billy D. Williams is like Lando is being cool here. He's not being creepy. Yeah. Part of what feels so energizing about Force Awakens and Last Jedi is that there is so much inherent sexism to the first six. I was laughing this time when Obi-Wan tells Luke, you have a sister. And Luke right away goes, Leia. Because, A, he can use the Force, but B, she's the only woman in all three movies. Right. Who's, it could be Mon Mothma, I guess, but uh, more likely that it's Leia. Yeah, I mean, she has one monologue and no right. other character development. Yeah, it's a pretty male-heavy first three movies here. That said, Empire Strikes Back is the best of the originals and i'm still working out whether i think it's still the best of all eight which can we give a ranking at the end are you cool with that i can do that all right cool i it's great it's good good it is good good return of the jedi 1983 well i want to start out with so the movies go the first one so new hope was directed george lucas written by george lucas star wars uh second one however the Lee Brackett and Lawrence Kasdan did the script and then Irvin Kirshner directed it and he just produced. Mm-hmm. And then Return of the Jedi here, he combines with Lawrence Kasdan, George Lucas, and then this guy Richard Marquand directed. Who, so my, I guess my overarching essay is, who the hell is that? <laughs> I believe he directed Jagged Edge. What but the he's hell is totally, that? That's, I think it's a thriller with Jeff Bridges from the 80s. I mean, he um, directed uh, 1993's Jean-Claude Van Damme's Nowhere to Run. A totally journeyman director. People give Irving Kirshner a fair bit of credit for being a steady hand of Empire Strikes Back, and I'm sure he deserves some of that. But I think also you are looking at uh, not auteurist directors, people who Lucas can... Move but why around. didn't they get the if they could get Irvin Kershner to the second one, why wouldn't they get the eras JJ Abrams or whomever to why do they just get this like TV director slash action movie C lister to direct one of the biggest franchises in movie history? Uh, but you remember there's this famous list of people who turned down Return of the Jedi, including David Lynch and Cronenberg, right? And very Oh wow. Because they just didn't think they could land the plane or what? Uh, I think because all of them were like... Met George Lucas. Yeah, <laughs> yeah man, a lot of those like 70s and early 80s uh, auteurs had no fucking time for this stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think 
sort of pivoting to how I feel about this movie a little. Uh, I feel like this one is kind of directed like your run-of-the-mill action movie. Okay. You kind of Which... feel the lack of artistry and the campiness of it, maybe. Mm-hmm. Like, I think the Ewoks are a great example. I think Princess Leia's costume when she's on the little, like, sand hut thing is, like, pretty oh, yeah. bad. The metal bikini. Pretty... Yeah, the metal bikini. That's so such a product of uh, 1983 it's oh yeah it's silly yep so i don't know but what is your overarching thing about this movie i was unable to watch this movie with a very clear head especially down the stretch and i was trying to figure out why and then i kind of realized i've never really been able to watch this movie with a super clear head and it's because of the editing and the pacing of the last like 50 minutes it's just the ewok battle intercut with the second take of the Death Star Trench run, intercut with the Emperor monologuing. And I can't believe I'm about to bring up Family Guy, but in the parody of Return of the Jedi, do you remember the joke? I don't. It's just Palpatine going, something, something, dark side, something, something, complete. (laughs) Which is kind of the last half hour of this movie. Oh, man. Well, because I think it goes back to that scene that you really liked with Yoda. And because, like, that scene really works, they wanted to have the dark side equivalent to it. Oh, yeah, equal time. Equal time. But they, <laughs> but the the Ian McDermott uh, monologue doesn't have the same power that the Yoda one does. And that's by design. They don't want to make the dark side seem, like, more credible than the light. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um. My problem is not with the Ewoks themselves. It's with the placement of the Ewoks. It's like, are you really going to use the last act of your three-movie epic trilogy to do this? This is really how we're going to spend the time because it's so anticlimactic. And then it is edited together in this like mind-melting way with two other things that we've seen before, as you said, that take forever I think Return of the Jedi, for me, gets a little worse every time I watch it. I loved it as a kid, um, but it does not have the deftness, the skill, or the depth of Empire, especially. I think the seeing the bears and the humans break into a spontaneous dance, <laughs> and then the, the camera just lingers on... If there's at least five shots of like different people just dancing... That is, you're right though. That is TV directing. That like when you see the cutting around everybody like doing a small dance and hugging. That's Star Wars Holiday Special directing for sure. Yeah, yeah. That's not. You don't need that. That shot. Irvin Kershner didn't say we should have a scene where everyone's dancing so we know that they accomplished the thing we just see, saw them accomplish. That's right. That's right. Um, I'm going to give this one a bad good. I think because of how I was raised, (laughs) I won't ever find it watchable. Um, I think the Jabba's Palace stuff is pretty great. I think if it were a braver movie, though, it would begin with Luke in solitude for 25 minutes, completing his training with Yoda. And Lucas didn't even want Yoda to be in the movie. He was like, didn't he complete his training? It's like, George, no. The whole point was that he left And then the other bad thing about the Ewoks is that it corresponds in the movie directly with where Kasdan and Ford were lobbying Lucas to kill Han. 
and Lucas literally would not do it because it would cut into merchandising. Like, imagine how powerful the last ha- act of Return Absolute of the Jedi would be upon power! <laughs> That's not the line, but... What is it? Unlimited power. Um, so I'm going to give it a bad good. I agree with you. Um, it's a pretty hard bad good, too. I think yep. it's only watchable because of, like, I just watched the previous two. Sure. But sure. I'm not just going to put on... It would have to Return. be in context of rewatching the whole series. I wouldn't just put on Return of the Jedi because I was like trying to see those bears again. You're very right. Phantom Menace. Phantom Menace. That's episode one, right? Uh, I again, I do not acknowledge, but <laughs> Phantom Menace, 1999. Let me ask you, which do you think are the most successful titles of these movies? Ooh, I think Phantom Menace is. Well, the phrase Phantom Menace is somewhat beautiful. Phantom Menace for a Star Wars title is maybe one of the worst ones. It should have been called like the, the midichlorian. Oh. <laughs> the Immaculate Conception. Oh, my God. Jesus well, my real Christ. question here was, do you think that Shmi and Qui-Gon have sex in this movie? You floated this theory to it me. It is a theory is. that the internet seems to also have given credence. Oh my god. There is at least three scenes where they exchange either touches or looks that indicate to me that there was intercourse there. There, These are possibly the two least sexual characters ever committed to film. I disagree. I think the the whole read on the Star Wars universe is that the Jedi, much like the Catholic priest, like it's just illogical for them to have this chastity. And the sure. first of two illusions in the prequels is that one Qui-Gon sleeps with the mom who then has to remain a slave and he feels really shitty about it. And then the next one is Anakin and Padme getting together. You're basing this on, you should tell people what you're basing it on a couple hand touches and a look between again, very asexual characters. The force is unusually strong with him. That much is clear. Who was his father? There was no father. I carried him. I gave birth. I raised him. I can't explain what happened. I think there's a moment. So there's a moment when they like she's talking about the fact that he was immaculately conceived and he kind of gives her this look and then in the next scene when he's pod racing when he enters the little like craft that they're sort of sitting in to watch it his hand goes ever so slightly across her hand and over her shoulder as he enters the thing as if to be like it's okay i hope your son doesn't die it's him saying that last night was great. Like, I enjoyed not, that. Not remotely. And then there's the scene where he can't get her back, and it dawns on Annie that, like, he's leaving and Shmi mom is not coming with. That Liam Neeson has this sort of, like, I'm so sorry that we, like, share. I thought I could save you, and I, I couldn't. And sorry for also having sex with you as well. <laughs> I like that all your points are in PSs. Um, he is sorry that he couldn't save her, but I don't think it has anything to do with sex. All right. I have a, I have a larger point. Please. I'm, I, I'm glad that you had the gall to bring that one in, though. Um, I think that the prequels 
are instantly so strange because there is no recognizable cinematic or folkloric POV. On some level, I think it's sort of brave. There's like a complete commitment just to the universe of we can do whatever we want, which is why a movie like Phantom Menace, as deeply, deeply flawed as it is, still feels kind of like no other goddamn movie. You don't like look out at generic blockbusters and you're like, that's just like Phantom Menace. No movies are like this weird ass movie. But it's also the pinnacle of indulgence. I mean, you, when the whole Kurosawa, Joseph Campbell illusions from the original trilogy ground you in old mythos and f- great filmmaking from the middle of the 20th century, you are seeing from the perspective of the droids and from Luke. And that holds pretty well through Star Wars into Empire, into Return of the Jedi. Whose perspective is this movie from? George Lucas's? A Star Wars fan? Everything's leading up to like, Senate votes or like mm-hmm. things of trade wars and like tax questions. Yeah. It's like none of that came up in the in the original three. I don't think George has a very nuanced understanding of politics. No, or racial stereotypes. Or that. Those are pretty bad in this movie. I mean, people have said that a lot, but like, boy, there's like four of them. And then like the weird, can we talk about Natalie Portman for like just two minutes? Sure. What is Natalie Portman, a fine actress, a fine actor, what is she doing in this movie? She's really daring and intellectual actor who will sink into characters with incredible preparation. I mean, Jackie, Black Swan, like the things she will do for roles are crazy. And because this one asks like both nothing of her and like <laughs> the lamest possible things of her, she is terrible. But she's also miserable. You can see it on her face in every scene. She is pretty bad. She's pretty bad in all yeah. of these. Can we turn toward a rating? Please do. I think that there are some very good things in Phantom Menace. Like that what? Are what are the good things? Just Darth Maul. And the, that fucking lightsaber fight at the end is unbelievable. That, that lightsaber fight's pretty iconic. The choreography of Ray Park and then Liam Neeson, who had played Rob Roy earlier in the decade, like, they... They are fucking going for it, which in Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith, George just animates that shit. So like a 90 year old man can fight Yoda. Yeah. Um, I think that the name Boonta Eve Classic is an incredible name for a sporting event. <laughs> Am I digging too deep here? I think Phantom Menace, I'm going to be a little nicer to it just because I really, really struggle for nice things to say about the next two. Uh I, if you could, you could watch it every decade and tell me it's a bad good. I think it, I think it might be a soft, bad, bad. That's fine. That makes sense. <laughs> I, I don't have, I mean, I don't mind that like the, you know, the, some of the Star Wars sort of Puritans will say that this is, this is a children's film. You know, sure. like that's the big critique of it. And I don't mind that aspect of it. I think these movies are all PG. So they're all kind of children's films. Um, but I just think this one's stupid. I think it's not well that well made. I think the pod racing is a spectacular sequence. I think there's great moments to it, but I think for the most part, you have like a really bloated movie for what is two or three really compelling uh, sequences, and that just goes back to scripts, right? Which for me, that just it just makes it not that watchable and not that good. Yep. Attack of the Clones, two thousand two. 
Oh my god, Attack of the Clones, which I think is the second worst Star Wars title. Okay, all right. That's just lazy. That's just lazy right there. You know what I noticed about the prequels and specifically Attack of the Clones this time that I have never noticed before? That Hayden Christensen was in it? No. I've always known that. But it's a related <laughs> point. It's a related point. Anakin's like dumb. <laughs> he is very easily duped by everyone. He's so easily duped. Left and right and left and right. And I don't think that's supposed to be the movie's intention. I never thought to myself watching the originals like, oh, I think Darth Vader's pretty dumb. I, that's so funny because I definitely had that read too on this time. It's like, maybe he's not evil. Maybe he's just stupid. And he's just he like very be. frustrated about the <laughs> fact that he's stupid, but he's very powerful. Right. You, I think you hit it too, that always he's tricked by the simplest shit. Like the very first conversation that Palpatine has with him when he's a full grown man is like, good morning, Anakin. I think that one day you'll be more powerful than Master Yoda. And Anakin's like, yeah, I think that could be right. And the way he talks about his power, like my powers have doubled, is like a high school football player is just like, I want to get real big over the summer for next year. Like he's, he's a little stupid, but this goes to the structure and what we know the prequels have to do. And the prequels not having the ability to find what's interesting inside the obligatory. Uh, this is kind of what I said about Casino the other day. But this is a, a tragic set of movies. You already know the tragic ending. And so what you're really watching for is dramatic irony and an actor who can pull off a transition that you know is coming. And sadly, of course, that is not Hayden, even remotely. Not even a little bit. But also... The Sith plot, not really seductive, not really surprising. He's just like, Anakin, you're a simple guy. You want to be super strong. I heard you had a nightmare about your wife. It would be really bad. I'm the only one who can show you how to keep her alive. And that's pretty much it. I, I just, I kind of feel sad for Hayden. I don't, he's not a good actor, but it's not like most of these actors, just like the guy who played Jar Jar Binks. It's Jake Lloyd. It's not their fault. (laughs) <laughs> it's, the, it's these movies fault and so they've finally given you an assignment your patience has paid off your guidance more than my patience you don't need guidance Anakin in time you will learn to trust your feelings then you will be invincible I have said it many times You are the most gifted Jedi I have ever met. Thank you, Your Excellency. I see you becoming the greatest of all Jedi, Anakin. Even more powerful than Master Yoda. What's your main point? Which one are we on? (laughs) (laughs) The one with the second worst title. I just want to break down... I know I'm looking at these two holistically, and I'm I'm doing galactic uh, takes here. Sure. But can we just break down... Sidious slash Palpatine's plan. So his endgame is to turn the infrastructure of the Republic into the evil empire. Correct. So what he does is creates a trade war 
in this sort of obscure planet system where he happens to be the senator. But mm-hmm. the people he's doing that don't recognize him and his disguise is he's got a hood. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. And then he uses that war to like just systematically rise in the Senate from relative obscurity and being like a dark Sith master. Yeah, he's got that on his side. And nobody seems to notice. Maybe the issue is not that Anakin Skywalker is stupid. Maybe it's just that everyone is stupid. Because I think a lot of it, a lot of the Star Wars stuff calls for a lot of like, oh, well, they're not going to think of this. And it's like, that's pretty simple. (laughs) I don't know, though. I mean, having the teamsters of this universe, the Trade Federation. Well, that's the other problem with this movie. It's like way too much the Irishman and not enough, you know, Star Wars. It's so much politics. Of, like, who deserves more power and, like, how separation works and their, like, goofy 2,000-planet government system. That just doesn't make sense to me. Like, if they were the UN, kind of, I would get it. But this seems to be, like, a a governing body of some kind that has access to a tax system that allows them to create – well, not only, like, pay for the Jedi, but to create a clone army. Mm-hmm. Though I got a sense that maybe the Camino guys got stiffed on that bill. <laughs> they were kind of like Trump contractors. Well, th- this movie is very like Trump predictive. Trump prescience, don't oh you my. think? Is it? Well, I mean, you've read about the clone army that he's building. Have I? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think actually that the clones are the one bit of trauma- of dramatic irony that does work it's one of the only things that works about two and three at all is just this idea of like there's a risk we have to create this sort of impartial force you know the whole time that like the impartial force will be used for bad even as you're watching it in the momentum of the movie be used for quote-unquote good i think that that bit of blueprinting works um i'll I'll talk about this more in a bit but i think the i think the role of the jedi and you already made the catholic illusion there's sort of like Vatican system is just like makes no sense slashes a really bad idea. Yeah. But I mean, that's why they had that scene where Obi-Wan and, or no, that Qui-Gon Jinn and Shmi got it on. (laughs) Attack of the clones rating. This movie's so long and so boring and it's got, it's filled with those. Like I like sand or I hate sand because it's not, it's coarse and not smooth like you, skin haver. <laughs> <laughs> it's coarse and it's rough and it gets everywhere. It's, it's coarse and rough and it gets everywhere. Yep. Sometimes Hayden Christensen delivers a line like Tommy Wiseau delivers yes, a line. Yes, yeah. Well, so here's the thing I was thinking about. You were texting me kind of making fun of Mark Hamill and like, yeah, Mark Hamill's not a great actor, but he is consistent in the fact that he's always overacting. Hayden swings wildly between underacting and overacting, and it's bizarre. Oh, man. His idea of subtlety, which is just like being five drinks in. And I just love how the script does him no favors of being like, you know, Anakin, we don't think you're ready for whatever thing. And he'll be like, I'm going to turn on the Jedi after this. (laughs) 
<laughs> he does wait a while, considering how many of those moments he has. I'm going to betray you. I'm so upset. Last thing before we move on, I just want to give a shout out to my mom, who, when I was 12, had the best take about this movie. She took me to see it. It was the first movie in a theater to ever give me a headache. She explained to me what had happened after I walked. I was like, Mom, I don't feel good. She's like, yes, because that movie was a thousand years long and really loud. But she turned to me as soon as she sees Obi-Wan with his beard. Ewan McGregor with the beard. This is a woman who is a massive Moulin Rouge fan. She turns to me, a 12-year-old boy, and is just like, you see how they really tried hard to make him not hot so Hayden could be hot? I don't like that at all. <laughs> Which is right. That's funny. That's they true. They immediately make a very handsome man in Ewan McGregor look kind of like an old man so right. Hayden can take the lead. I don't like sand. It's coarse and rough and irritating and it gets everywhere not like here here everything is soft and smooth Revenge of the Sith Revenge of the Sith 2005 I have only one take on this movie and I it might be the one I'm most excited to break down with you even though there may not be much substance to it Ian McDiarmid is off the fucking reservation in this movie. <laughs> he is also in a lot of it. Like, way more than I remember. Yeah, he's a big uh. character in it. And he has some pretty incredible scenes. I think the him, Mace Windu, uh, that's the best scene in the movie. I Sometime, like, when we're doing just some random episode, like, military heist films or something, and you make, like, a fairly neutral point about, like, Triple Frontier, I'm just gonna go... Now, 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 it is you who will die! That was right. The Jedi are taking over! The oppression of the Sith will never return. You have lost. No. 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 You will die! traitor! is the traitor! It's so good. Okay, but here's oh, so here's the bigger takeaway. <laughs> we know from interviews that George Lucas does not understand human behavior and is therefore not really an actor's director, right? You can read interviews with Mark Hamill where he'll be like, oh yeah, in 1977 I came to George and was like, so George, what's my motivation in this scene? And George was like, oh, uh, I have to fix a robot. I'll talk to you about that later. And then never talks to him about it. <laughs> right. But no actor has ever used the lack of performance oversight to just cook this way, to make Al Pacino in Devil's Advocate look like Brad Pitt in Ad Astra. Like, just the audacity to scream power. Just the word <laughs> power. The word power as you like lightning kill Mace Windu. He's just screaming the subtext. Just screaming. Power! It's, it is unbelievable. And then, yeah, if you thought that Return of the Jedi Emperor acting was like overdone, when he's like on the Senate being like, I am disfigured, but my resolve. <laughs> it's, it's insane. Also, the makeup. The makeup is crazy. I don't know why they didn't just do the makeup from 20 years before. Why he had to be, like, younger disfigured, I will never understand. Maybe it's because his skin was just kind of, like, freshly broiled. But, yeah, Ian McDiarmid gets all the leeway in the world and uh, shoots it with Force Lightning. 
That's great. Yeah, Ian McDermott is really, really good. Um, and I think um, Ewan McGregor sort of, I guess, realizes that about halfway through the movie. And then when they get to the volcano planet, um, he's like, You were the chosen one! Oh, that he can finally act? He gets to do yeah. his Stella, too. Right, right, that's true. <laughs> My big takeaway, I think, in this movie is why would anyone build stuff on a volcano planet? And why do all the planets seem to not, they seem to all have like atmosphere enough that anyone can breathe on them at all times? You really went like cinema sins with some of these. Not to be mean to you, but it was just What like, do you mean? You couldn't breathe on that planet. That would never work. <laughs> but don't you think it's crazy that like they never have to test the atmosphere? Like we got nine planets here and only one of them has like stuff on it that can be breathed. Uh, that's right. Um, <laughs> I will grant you uh, that. Check, that one checks out. Mustafar is a terrible looking planet. Like, I would not have filmed Lucifer there. is the kind of planet that Tommy Lee Jones should have seen and appreciated at that's the right. end of Ad Astra, but not the kind of place that they'd be like, that's where we should build a mining colony. Also, I'm sorry, I did not mean to make it sound like they shot on location in Mustafar. <laughs> but I think that's... The Mustafar set piece, I think, just reveals like a larger, maybe Star Wars pet peeve I have, which is like the get to the climactic weird place they have to be where it's hot. It's sort of like the end of all the Terminator movies. Like if we're not sweating and not in some like very industrial space, but I I almost think that the stupid like droid factory bug sequence is a little ridiculous. Oh yeah. That's terrible on Geonosis. Yes. And then this one on, yeah, where was Mustafar. it called? Mustafar. I feel like these movies are so bad that they like make me question what we originally thought about what the four, five, and six were. Limitations create better art, and they That's did. Right. That's right. That's 100% it. Did you think it was kind of funny? And this is another pet peeve I have with these movies, too, is that the technology in the prequels looks more advanced than it did in four five and six which is just the problem of making a movie in the 70s and then in the 90s but didn't you was it a little jarring for you to then see like the rebel ship from the opening shot of new hope sorry star wars um the opening shot of star wars then like be in the four of all these scenes because of the fact that like they wanted to have that callback but then like the tech on the walls looks pretty like 70s ish yep that's definitely a weird thing that it all comes from bad storytelling instincts that were like we can't end (laughs) revenge of the sith until we find out what darth vader had for lunch the day they stormed the tantive four (laughs) at the beginning of star wars it was bad yeah but you're right that is a weird uh unforced error on this movie's part yeah but they have to make it line up so cleanly with A New Hope, even though years and years are going to pass. Yeah, well, he has to go, like, stand on the bridge and wait for Star Wars to start, even though there's 17 He's years just going to watch go. the Death Star be built for 10, 15, 20 years? Like, how long <laughs> is it? It's dumb. Um, Revenge of the Sith is terrible. It is so... <laughs> it's so long. Oh, it's very long. It's somehow like two hours longer than The Irishman. Uh, it's bad, bad. 
I think this one's bad good. Oh. I think this was definitely more palatable than Attack of the Clones. And it's got enough of those like annoying fan tickly moments to just keep it keep it moving. There's some good fight sequences. There's some good Yoda stuff. There's of course like Palpatine doing his uh best Nicolas Cage. Death Plagueis the Wise. <laughs> Teach me. I have someone I'm afraid is going to die. Teach me the undead thing. God, why did he? Stupid. The other thing I was watching is why did the why does he just not confide earlier in the fact that he has a relationship and Palpatine can poison his mind by going against the actual arguable arguable against Jedi rules about relationships would have been much richer and more human. Perhaps, but Whatever. like I just don't. I mean. I thought like the everyone kind of knew already about them because there's that like goofy scene where he's like, "Excuse me, while I step two feet into this <laughs> shadow and we can make out for a little while." It's like, Eddie, someone's gonna see you. It's like obviously someone's gonna see you. You're not away from people. <laughs> <laughs> All right, The Force Awakens, two thousand. That's number. That's number eight. No, that's number seven. Seven. Do you remember the whitest? Do you ever watch Whitest Kids You Know? I did. Race War? <laughs> yes, but that's not the sketch I was going to talk about. I was going to talk about the sketch where the kid like chats George Lucas. Do you remember this? No. I'll I'll cut a I'll cut a bit of it into the into the episode, but it's um so it's from like 2009, right? So it's between between prequels and Force Awakens, of course. And the, he, the, George Lucas chats him back. Yes, this is the real George Lucas. Meet me in L.A. in 30 minutes. <laughs> and then they, they sit down and they have lunch. And the kid was like, I have a movie idea. Um, and George is like, I can't wait to hear it. And the kid's like, what about Star Wars 7? And George goes, <laughs> ah, Star, Star Wars, Wars 7! 7! It's brilliance is in its simplicity. Go forward in time. So what would happen in this future after Jedi movie? Well, I was thinking that maybe they could have to blow up another Death Star. They had another Death Star? Yeah, maybe. And then maybe Leia betrays Luke or something. Um, so yeah, Star Wars 7. Nobody fluffs a property quite like J.J. Abrams does. Well said. That's my overarching thesis here i think no one makes doing the same old thing feel new again (laughs) quite like if you so if you look at the plot of this movie it is just a new hope of course made to feel new again with some diverse casting and uh changing some of the roles of who does what but ultimately having us wind up with the same old pieces and harrison ford but that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's the physicality of this movie that rejuvenates everything. The first time that Ray flies the Millennium Falcon, you can feel the weight of the laser cannon as it gets jammed. Adam Driver's unique stomping physicality lends so much to this movie. Sure. Daisy Ridley crawling on the deserted Star Wars Even you get the focus on the kickback of Chewbacca's bowcaster when Han likes to shoot yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. This is a movie that asks, how do we give literal weight to the legacy of these movies? And it's unintrusive, but it's inquisitive at the same time. Even that scene of um, when they attack the planet with the cantina part two on it, 
and you get Poe flying in the tracking shot above Finn taking out TIE fighter after TIE fighter and then like zooming back across that, all based on uh, the physical limitations of the lens and the space, even as the background is all CGI. Abrams has just done a really nice job of recommitting these mo- movies, not to being real, but to a certain reality compared to the prequels, which are everyone is just a weightless blur of computers. Well, I think that's the problem with the prequels is that like it didn't know what to do with the camera. And then J.J. Abrams figures out like what's cool about this universe is like the weird spaces that occur because of the non-traditional movements these people make. 100%. And so it, it isn't afraid to meander through all these like pipes and industrial stuff, whereas like George Lucas would have just sat in this like wide shot and then like gone to a medium shot and like never zoomed in on anyone unless like it was to keep Christopher Lee from moving because he probably couldn't. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I heard a kind of a funny but telling anecdote the other day of Oscar Isaac on a talk show being like, yeah, we were in the middle of the desert in Jordan and J.J. Abrams brought a green screen. And I was like, why'd you bring a green screen to a Jordanian desert, JJ? And he's like, you can't recreate the lighting of actual desert, but I do need to put something in the background. And I think that that is um, a harder, but like a good mentality for making for sure. these films. Yeah, It's always the background, like make it traditional movie making that you still play with like literally what's in front of you. And then like the middle ground, sure. Yeah. But like, don't give everything up like that was the thing the crazy thing about the prequels is that all the sets were built just as high as everybody's head because they would cgi everything else right that's true but like that's such a mistake like why do that i'm being torn apart i want to be free of this pain I know what I have to do, but I don't know if I have the strength to do it. I mean, Adam Driver might be the best actor of his generation. It's amazing that he is in this performance and so lucky on their part. He has what both Mark Hamill and Hayden Christensen don't have. And he is able to really like pull this movie into a space of naturalism that i think it really benefits from like there are those movies or there are those moves where john boyega will be like why do you get to talk to me that way like like let's just you know and his like funny asides are good and gives the movie levity but not in the way to take away from the stakes of the thing in front of everyone there's also coming back to a point you were making earlier uh for the first time a real affection toward a woman several oh my god in the movie and i don't just mean like an obligatory like oh well it's around 2015 we should probably put a woman in the leading role this these movies love princess leia and they love ray and my favorite line in probably the whole movie in force awakens is when han invites her to come work on the ship and in that very grumpy dad way is just like well we wouldn't be nice to you which is only something you say like when you have developed like an instant real like love of a younger person that you want to like take care of them and show them the ropes. And I think that line speaks it all. So I think this one returns to good, good. I would agree. The last Jedi 2017. So we've reviewed this movie in full on our show. If you want to dive back through the archives on be real podcast.com. Um, 
I think that we both spoke quite highly of it at the time. I still really like it because it is a very thinky Star Wars movie. It is a good, it is a movie that I think only gets better watched in the context of watching all the Star Wars movies. It's very thoughtful about what the tradition, the legacy of Star Wars is. Um, I also feel outside of sort of like Russian trolls, why people who love the prequels wouldn't like it because it is essentially especially my favorite scene in the movie and i'm gonna be honest with you maybe my favorite scene in any star wars movie is the return of yoda to talk to luke and setting the jedi text aflame (laughs) i just love that scene so much but he's essentially accusing the jedi as we've come to know them in these movies of being philosophically bankrupt which is a read that works well because you've watched George Lucas sort of like mishandle and misapprehend Jedi for three other movies. I was very struck by the line in Revenge of the Sith where Obi-Wan says to Anakin, only a Sith deals in absolutes, which is of course in and of itself a stupid absolute and is ripe for a takedown, which this movie does. There is a vanity to it. Why did the Jedi so willingly become army commanders when they were supposed to be brokers of peace and monastic thinkers in the galaxy. There is this fundamentalism and lack of nuance to that Vatican-style governance that makes no sense, which makes the subversion of Last Jedi really great on like a deep Star Wars nerd level. So, I can't be what she needs me to be. He did my words not, did you? Pass on what you have learned. Strength, mastery, but weakness, folly, failure also. Yes, failure most of all. The greatest teacher failure is. And I think it's also a good self-interrogation of the series. Like, I think whereas Luke calls out the Jedi for being you know, sort of philosophically bankrupt. Ryan Johnson's also critiquing the prequels for being without artistic merit, you know? And it's like, this movie feels like it is saying these movies used to be about like clever filmmaking. Like Mm. what happened to that? Like, it's not just toys and stuff. Any like this property can do something that I think is inventive of the genre that it helped pioneer. And that almost feels like the vision there to try something new within the confines of it has really, I think, breathed life into what could have easily been pawned off as like camp and like shameless materialism from the prequels, which it was what it was. It was video games and it was action figures and all that shit. And like, I'm not that inclined to want to play a video game of this, but I definitely enjoyed it as a movie more. I'm with you. I would try to not to be too zealous. I mean, as we look ahead to Rise of Skywalker about my fear over whether they'll just, you know, retcon the thing about Rey's parents into being like, oh, actually, they were Luke and you're twins with Kylo Ren and everybody's a Jedi because of metachlorians, whatever. But um, but I like hearing that J.J. Abrams says the risks that Ryan Johnson took opened up my eyes to like what was possible with this series. That, to me, is... A harbinger of of good things because this should be more creative and should not just be Return of the Jedi again. Are you skeptical that will happen? 
I don't know. I think J.J. Abrams has a few tricks up his sleeve, but I don't know that it's going to be as good or better as... It's not going to be the best one. I think we can safely say that. And it may be goofy. I don't know. The other thing about Ryan Johnson is that he's in a good position. The second movie is where you can get dark and weird and try shit. And he was lucky to be in that post because that's what he did. And it turned out really well for me. That's a great point, though. Is that your essay? Are you done or are there more? Yeah, I'm, I'm done. What I really like about this movie, and I noticed it the first time and I noticed it more the second time I watched it, which was this last time. There's just a great feminist read on it. This idea of like not only showing like women who will stand up to power, just showing like powerful women. And that was like a really like I really like Laura Dern in this and she'll end up sort of, I think, playing more of these types of characters after this movie, too. Um, But this sort of like strong, like I don't need to explain myself character. And even Laura, um, even um, Carrie Fisher is like really she's found new depths i think with this like battle hardened you know matriarch of this whole movement and it's almost like the movie is aware of those moments that i was critical of too with lando calrissian where you have rose sort of appear and then like john boyega tries to like put on the moves a little bit to like get out of her realizing like what's going to happen and he ends up incapacitated because of her cunning and like no bullshit like she can be starstruck but she's not going to be seduced or duped the only other thing i wanted to say that was what i thought was like an original thought that i had which was not there's actually some really good writing on it that is well beyond me is the things that happen in this movie with the John Williams score, the variations and motifs, the riffs on the classic Star Wars songs that all of a sudden descend into much darker, uh, kind of newer compositions. Like I'm, I'm gonna do an embarrassing thing and hum here for a second, but the like, like that, like that last, like na, yeah, yeah. that. In like you're ready for the new hope, right? You're ready for a da da like I have this more strings, everything. In Last Jedi, it goes from da into like different weird meditations on the Imperial March. Like darkness is right there. Wow. Um, neck in the Sonics next to the light. What do you rate Last Jedi? I rate it good, good with the amount of force that it would take to throw General Hux into a control panel. Fuck yeah, I think it's I think it's really good. Um, good, 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 good. Yes, indeed. Should we rank? Yes. Well, I'm at the end of a nearly 90 minute podcast here, so I should say what I really feel and come with the come with the real come with the new takes. Do it. So I actually am going to say that Last Jedi is my favorite Star Wars movie. I'm going to say the same. Then I'm going to go Empire. For sure. Force Awakens. Mm, nope. Star Wars for you. Star Wars is three for me. Then Force Awakens. Ah, it's really hard to put Force Awakens ahead of Star Wars because it's just doing the same movie, isn't it? Right. Damn it. I'll stick with what I said. Uh... 
Okay, so Force Awakens and Star Wars 3 and 4. Or 4 and 3 for you. Then so Return Star of the Jedi? Wars, then Return of the Jedi 5. Now, here's what I'm curious about. We did not discuss Rogue One or Solo. I, I think put, they're better than all the prequels. <laughs> I think Rogue One for me, it's between, I think, Return of the Jedi and The Force Awakens. Okay, that's fine. I would put it behind Return of the Jedi, but that's cool. Solo? Solo I'd probably put above Revenge of the Sith, which is my third from last. And then the penultimate is Phantom Menace. And then the absolute garbage rock garbage. Yeah, the absolute rock bottom garbage basement is Attack of the Clones. I would go... Phantom third from the bottom, Sith second from the bottom, clones at the bottom. But Phantom has Jar Jar Binks in it. Uh, he's in Attack of the Clones too. That's why I put it last. <laughs> Looky, we were in virtual lockstep in this episode. I'm glad about that. It's good to know that when we get to like old sacred texts, we're still in fundamental agreement. That's right. Our, one of these, our film constitution holds up. One of these days we might set the uh, Jedi texts ablaze, but uh, but not today. Yeah, it's only in the Talmudic readings of cinema history do we do we defer. Any other thoughts on Rise of Skywalker, which again comes out December 20th from Walt Disney I'm pretty Studios. excited. Are you excited? I'm I am excited. Ex- extra excited because I watched all these fucking movies. Yeah, I feel very up to date. Yeah, I could probably tell you anything. Except how big the galaxy is. <laughs> And how money is exchanged. So perplexed. The Mandalorian does a good job in positing that money is just metals. Like yeah. Whatever metals you seem to have on you in like great quantity is your, is your coin. And Carl Weathers tries to pay the Mandalorian in Imperial credits. credits. And he's just like, like no. Your credits are no good here. Fuck that noise. Um, I'm really enjoying the Mandalorian. It's, it's It really reminds me of... The Star Wars Expanded Universe novels, which are just like, uh, Boba Fett's a character. Let's see what he's up to. There's a bounty hunter guild. Those K.W. Jeter books. I like those. Wow. Uh, it's pretty deep. Yeah, I think it's a pretty good. It feels lived in, but it doesn't feel so inaccessibly large as to be like, because that's like, I think my problem with the the prequels too is like there was a scenes where like a character would like weigh a huge decision and look out this vast landscape of like a gazillion apartment buildings or whatever and all these cars right. and it's like how much does what you're doing affect any of this yeah it doesn't seem like it's not like a marvel movie where like new york's gone ever like after the big thing happens like either your planet survives and is fundamentally unchanged or I mean, I think Coruscant got blown up in the... It certainly looked like it. Yeah, fuck. We can still remember it, though, by the uh, 100 establishing shots in Revenge of the Sith. Oh, my God. Back on Coruscant. My one take for Rise of Skywalker, and I felt this way coming out of Last Jedi, is I feel like, and I really do like Donald Gleeson, even though I agree, they did not know what to do with General Hawks in Force Awakens. They, they've kept him around for a reason. And now that Daddy Snoke is dead, he gives Ren a look, he gives him a vote of no confidence look at the end of Last Jedi. That's like Hux is gonna try to overthrow Ren, and he's absolutely gonna get murked. But it'll probably be a pretty entertaining bit of acting when it happens. Oh man, 
Wait, is the rumor that Palpatine is like the big, big bad? Yes. Oh, man. Just kill me. Oh, and Ian McDermott is in it. Like, that's been announced. Let the past die. (laughs) Kill it if you have to. Maybe he'll just, like, present himself. Maybe he's just like a... Doesn't he, like, die pretty aggressively at the end of Jedi? We don't know that he won't come back in corrupting spiritual form. Rise. Right. That would be fine. It's just... This goes, this goes back to Last Jedi. We've talked about this before, but the idea of let the past die, kill it if you have to, is also antithetical to corporate strategy. Never let the past die, says modern movie making. Right. So well, at least I, not franchise movie making, for yes, sure. Right. I mean, that's that's true. That's So I, just, I feel like we're going to end up in a spot where Rise of Skywalker will satisfyingly enough and heavy-handedly enough wrap up this trilogy, but... Last Jedi will always feel like, I think, a dark, weird, like, subversive Star Wars nugget in the middle of what is otherwise, you know, nine movies that are supposed to go together. This movie has a lot of writing credits on it, which makes me very nervous. How many credited screenwriters? Um, So, uh, George Lucas characters, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Story by Derek Connolly and Colin Trevorrow. No, sorry, Colin Trevorrow. Thank you. Chris Terrio and J.J. Abrams, and then screenplay by Chris Terrio and J.J. Abrams. It's an instinct. A feeling. The force brought us together. That was a good A-movie megapod, Noah. Happy Thanksgiving to you. Yes, Jesus. We made it. We survived. Thanks for doing this. Thanks to the Playlist Podcast Network for hosting us. We've got some year-end reviews and reappraisals still on the way. But uh, for now, what, what's the expression? May the force be with you? Always. What, uh, what are you doing there, 3PO? Taking one last look, sir. At my friends. 